0: We read the Word of God in Matthew 5, well-known chapter, the first of the chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon about the Kingdom. And we're going to read two parts of that, which pertain to the Sixth Commandment. We're going to read, first of all, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, and then 38 to the end of the chapter. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. And now verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemies. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven." For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And on the basis not only of that Scripture, but also and especially of the Sixth Commandment, we turn to Lord's Day 40. There we're asked, what what doth God require in the Sixth Commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another. But that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with a sword to prevent murder. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge and that he accounts all these as murder. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards him, and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies. Beloved saints of Jesus Christ, it matters what school you go to. Go to one school, and you might be taught something radically different from what you learn in another school. I could illustrate my point by many examples from church history, in which a certain seminary, already going back into the time of the 200s, but continuing through the whole New Testament era, a certain seminary will teach a man one kind of theology and one view of Scripture and another a radically different view. But skip the church history lesson for now because we have a much more obvious example. Send your child to the public school and he will be taught far differently than if you send him or her to the Christian school. Point made. Likewise, as we come to school today, what school we go to matters. Because the world has a school, and in that school it teaches about love. But what God teaches us about love and what the world teaches us about love is radically different, antithetically opposed. The world will tell us that love is to be tolerant of everything every one and every idea. God's law of love does not include tolerance of everything, every one and every idea. Go to the world school and you will be taught that love involves loving every man, every woman, every child without distinction and loving them in such a way now that not for God's sake, but really ultimately for your own You get them to like you. The world won't say it that explicitly in their lesson about love. But that's what it comes down to. Why should I love everyone? In some way, I'll get something out of it. God says, love everyone, love even your neighbors, but love them to show your love for God. In other words... Though we're in the second table of the law, we haven't forgotten the first table of the law, which which requires us to love God above all. And now the Christian has, as he's taught in his school, a reason to love my neighbor that the world will never tell me for God's sake. And thirdly, go to the world's school and you will be told that the power to love is in yourself. You are a good person inherently. You have some weaknesses. Perhaps there are things that work against you being good. Fight them. You can do it. Go to God's school as we are today and He'll tell you, oh no. You already knew this anyway. You don't have the power to love in yourself. And that's what explains our frequent disobedience the Law of God in the Sixth Commandment, but there is a power in Jesus Christ. If I prove my point, what school you go to makes a difference. We come to God's school this morning again. we sit under the preaching of the Word, and especially the words of our Lord and Savior in his exposition. exposition Of the sixth commandment. And even in the context. And the purpose of his speaking. To the different commandments of the law of God. Illustrates the point. The Pharisees had their school. They had their interpretations. Of the law. And Jesus refers to them. Again and again in the passage that I read. You have heard that it was said by them of old time. This. Later on. You heard someone else say that. These are the Pharisees. But I say unto you. I'm going to be taught by Christ in the school of the law this morning about loving our neighbor. To that I call your attention. First of all, we're going to learn the proper manner. Secondly, the great obstacle. And third, the only possibility. In my first point, there's really three things I want to do. The third of which will be, state more, the manner of love. But the first is to explain what love is. What is this love which we're called to do? You can argue, of course, that the Sixth Commandment isn't even addressing the matter. That we're going a little afield of the Sixth Commandment. For it says, thou shalt not kill. But our Heidelberg Catechism underscores what you and I know by now, because we're mature Reformed Christians, that when the law says you may not, it implies you must. Don't do this means thou shalt do that. And so the Catechism says, well, is it enough that we don't kill any man? That's all that's required of us here. And the answer is no. God requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards him, prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and do good even to our enemies. But to understand that again, what is love? That's lesson number one this morning. And in answer, we look to God. If you try to explain love any other way than looking to God and to look to his love, then you will go astray. God's love is that virtue of God according to which he seeks his glory in the way of bringing sinners into fellowship with himself. And in bringing sinners into fellowship with Himself, He does us good, good, good. Not that everything He does in our life feels good, sickness, etc., but its purpose is always good, sanctification, and bringing us deeper and deeper into fellowship. Jesus says of God's love in Matthew 5, verse 48, that it is perfect. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Notice that that does not mean sinless, although certainly God is sinless. But that the word perfect here means complete. And the point is that God's love is a complete love. It's shown in every possible way. It's shown in its most glorious form, the love of God, according to which He gives Himself for us. That's love. Your love and my love must be like that. And any time we have a what we call love for another that is a kindness shown them with a view to knowing what I will get out of it, how will this benefit me? Then we are not loving as God loved, and we've learned the wrong lesson in the wrong school. Look to your father. You are his children. See in his love, the example to follow. There's one more thing to say about God's love. And it comes out of Matthew 5. And it bears on the question of how I show my love and how you do too. The question is, does God love every single person? And the answer is emphatically not. That is, He has not prepared heaven for all. He did not send Jesus Christ to die for all. He does not draw each and every into fellowship with Himself. We understand that. But do not overlook that although we will not call it love for all, there is something God shows to all men that Jesus in the text calls goodness or kindness. He makes His sun to shine, uh, to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, if the whole point of the text and sermon is common grace, then we'd explain very carefully that his purpose in giving good gifts to the wicked is to prepare them for hell. But that is beside the point, really, of what we're here to do today. Here's the point for now. Although God does not love each and every human in the sense that he just receives them as they are and receives them into fellowship with himself, he sets a pattern for you and for me to love everybody. But in loving everybody, to make a distinction still, how do I show love to the believer and how do I show love to the unbeliever? And that leaves me in the second place, then to speak and answer the question to whom, to whom is this love to be shown? And the answer is the neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. From the viewpoint of the Ten Commandments and from the viewpoint of the Sermon on the Mount, both of which were spoken to God's covenant people. The neighbor is, first of all, the brother or sister in the church of Jesus Christ. But you can expand on that. And God does in His law, when He told Israel at Sinai, how they were to treat even the stranger that was within their gates, how they were to conduct themselves in war with nations around them, And Jesus Christ, as he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, our conduct toward those who are our enemies. He emphasizes that this love now, though to be shown to a neighbor, is broader than just brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ. The neighbor is each and every person who crosses my path throughout the day. Some of them I know, some of them I don't. Some of them I envisioned meeting. Some of them I didn't know I would meet until they were right there. To each and every one, I'm to do good. Now, that the neighbor includes each and every one who crosses my path means that ethically, from a viewpoint of their own moral character, I've come across two different kinds of people. Not all love me. That's the point Jesus is making, At the end of the chapter, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Jesus isn't saying there, you hate some people, and I'm telling you to stop hating them and start loving them. In that verse, he's saying, there are people who hate you. They curse you. They want to destroy you. They persecute you, and you, recognizing that they are themselves morally, not in conformity with the law of God, are nevertheless to love them in return. And in this way, God tests our faith and our obedience, and desires that we show ourselves to be the children of our Father, Or I'll tell you one other thing about what you would learn about love in the school of the world. For all the nice lesson about loving everybody, being kind and intolerant, when the world's hatred erupts, as it inevitably will, because the world does not have the love of God in them and the power of Christ in them, when the world's hatred erupts, it is a destructive and a violent hatred. The Lord says, that's your nature and mine, but show yourselves to be children of your Father. When your love is tested by one who hates you, show whose child you are. That leads us in the third place to speak in greater length of the question, how? It's a relevant question. All this talk about love means nothing if it's not displayed in my life and in your life. If it doesn't proceed from my heart and your heart. All this talk about love is meaningless if it's just a matter of putting on a smile, saying a nice thing to a person, and as soon as you leave that person and they're out of your sight, you are uttering forth the thoughts that really were in our heart. That's not love. All this talk about love means nothing if we do not know how to love. And Jesus at length in Matthew 5 teaches the Jews of his day how to love in the first place. In verses 40 to 42, he speaks of caring for a man's earthly needs. If a man sues you with the law and takes away your coat, give him your cloak. Now this man apparently isn't merely a cold man. Elsewhere, the, uh, uh, James, the inspired writer, addresses that. If a man is cold and naked and you have a coat, you give him your coat. If he's hungry, you give him food. But Jesus is still saying, a man asks something of you. He wants you to go a mile with him, go too. He asks something of you. He would borrow from you, don't turn him away. First of all then, how love is shown is by giving for the earthly need of a person. And that also is underscored in question and answer 107. I'm to show peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness to him. Implied, I'm to care for his bodily needs. In that way, we show that our love is not just a selfless, or rather a selfish love, but is a selfless love. Even the possessions God gives me aren't just for me to use for me, first of all. I'm to use them for the well-being of my neighbor. In the second place, in the Sermon on the Mount, especially verse 44 again, Jesus indicates that this love for the enemy now is to be shown by loving, blessing, doing good, and praying for. And we come now to how I show love to one who does not show themselves to love God. I might give them anything they need for their earthly bodily needs, but although I can say to them, you don't love God, you are not a fellow believer, I cannot have intimate spiritual fellowship with you, yet I must still pray for them. And the prayer, which is followed up by a godly witness on my part, is that they who show hatred right now will soon come to know the love of God. The prayers that God convert them. The prayers that they come to see how great and glorious His love is and their great need for it. In order that I might have deeper fellowship with them, it might be, of course, that God doesn't answer that prayer and that to their dying day, they live in ungodly unbelief And yet I have sought their good, their real advantage, and their salvation. In the third place, in Matthew 5, Jesus indicates that the keeping of this law involves putting aside all self-seeking. Now I'm going back to verse 25 and 26. You have an adversary. And apparently that adversary has something legally on his side. There's something you did or something he can make use of, unless it requires him to twist the law, that could get you put into prison. And when you're in prison, you're in prison. You're not about to get out again until you pay the uttermost farthing. Perhaps the debt you owed. Perhaps the fine you owe. And says Jesus, agree. In other words, seek peace with him. There was a disagreement between you two. It might be you say, but I'm right, and he needs to see that. It might be that he's saying the exact same thing. And therefore, love which is meek, answer 107, is a love that's going to say, what must I concede?" Not for the sake of bare compromise. Not for the sake of giving up an essential principle. Not that I'm going to confess to a sin I didn't commit. But what must I concede? Because part of love is that I seek peace. Not just in the home and church. But in the society and among those with whom I live. Seek peace. Put aside peace heady differences. Those are three ways in Matthew 5 that Jesus showed how to love. It's at this point that I'm going to make applications that are more uh, relevant perhaps to us today in our culture and context. In the first place, if the neighbor is the person who crosses our path, then let it be underscored that that neighbor is the person right now in the womb of any woman. In other words, we live in a society that, for all its talk about love, hates the unborn. And there are reasons, not godly reasons, but there are reasons why it might be a temptation for a Reformed Christian also to say, I'm going to get rid of, if I can, the life of the unborn. I mean the unborn in my womb. I mean, I'd rather do that, maybe a young lady says, than tell mom and dad I'm pregnant. Or, I'd rather do that than have the whole rest of the church know and have to make confession of sin. It's worth pointing out that the sovereignty of God governs conception. God in His sovereignty determines who my neighbor is. He sometimes puts my neighbor in my path at a time I wasn't exactly looking for that neighbor, but I'm to love that neighbor. And so, not just to take a pot shot at society around us that condones abortion, let every one of us also understand the sin of it, and not try to deal with sin, perhaps the sin of fornication, with another sin. In the second place, the neighbor is my child and my wife against whom I do get frustrated at times, which is my sin in the heart. And so I mayn't hit. I mayn't lash out. I may use words that are not godly words and that do not convey a genuine love for the person. And that's where the Sixth Commandment governs our lives. Now children, let it be known that there is one aspect or one area of your body in which your parent in certain circumstances may hit. That would be your butt, And it would be when your parent is disciplining you. And that God does not call murder, hatred, or abuse. Apart from that, it is the calling of the Reformed Christian to show love by dealing with my frustrations and anger in such a way that I do not hurt another. In the third place, the neighbor is the person driving down the freeway next to me. And I had this just the other day. That person, well, I won't use the word that came to my mind. That person was not driving wisely. and It made me angry. And my immediate response was to show the person a thing or two, which of course was anger. And therefore, because that was my neighbor, it becomes my calling and yours to use our vehicle and be in control of it in such a way that we promote peace. Let him buy. Let him buy. That's the best thing you can do. Fourth, to expand on that point a little more broadly, you and I have many things which are not wrong in themselves. They're knives, they're guns, they're cars. But which can be used unintentionally sometimes, negligently, says the state, in the way so that I hurt or kill another And it is my calling as a child of God to prevent my neighbor's hurt as much as in me lies. That is, to have such an awareness of the danger that this knife or gun or car could cause someone else that I maintain control of it at all times. That's my calling. And if I'm convicted of negligent homicide in a court of law, there is every reason why my elders would ask me to confess. Not that I intended to kill somebody, but that I was not careful enough. Maybe even not wise in how I used a thing and I have killed. And then fifthly, All the applications i made so far were outward. They were actions. My heart. That's my biggest problem. Not that I don't have other big problems or those other things I said weren't. It all starts in the heart. And the catechism underscores that. There is anger, envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge. And the real question as to how to keep this law of God isn't just, what do I do when I have a gun in my hand? and What do I do when I'm driving a car? And how do I love the unborn child? The real question is, when that anger flares up in my heart, what do I do about it? And here's the answer. Pray. Immediately, you and I need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And secondly, remember the sovereignty of God? What that person just said about me, that wasn't kind. I'm not defending it. God had a purpose in it. And part, just part of his purpose, was to give me an occasion to show that I'm a child of my Father which is in heaven. let's remember that by the grace of god in christ that leaves me in the second place to speak of the great obstacle and here again there's a difference in what we're taught in the school of the christ as opposed to the school of the world because the school of the world says i know what makes this so difficult it's the neighbor And the problem is that my nature and yours was raised, as it were, in the school of the world. And we quickly buy into this one. And we're very quick to blame others and defend our own hatred, envy, desire of revenge. It's the neighbor. I'd love him or her if he or she would do something different. That's an attempt to excuse sin. The school of Christ, the great obstacle that's presented for you and for me to keeping this commandment is not the neighbor, but it's ourselves. Jesus underscores that again. In the passage that we read. It's the Pharisees who have a certain approach to the law. And Jesus is going to bring a different approach to the law. And his is going to be, first of all, don't be angry without a cause. I'm focusing now on verses 21 and 22. That whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now without a cause underscores that there is such a thing as a righteous anger. But righteous anger is not an anger of personal hatred toward the man or woman, other person, because of what they did to me. It is a grief because the law of God was broken. So anger without a cause is more of what the catechism has in mind when it speaks of envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge. They did something I don't like. They have something I wish I had. I want that, and I'm angry at them for it. And Jesus says, But you want is in danger of the judgment. Now it's anger without a cause. And if that anger stays hidden in one's heart, there's only one judgment Jesus can have in mind. And that's the judgment of God. In the second place, he says, If you call your brother Raka, you shall be in danger of the council. Now I said something. Now what's in my heart came out in my mouth, and I called him senseless or empty. That's what Raka means. To use a common parlance, I called him dummy or stupid. And I think I had every right to do that. But God didn't. Shall be in danger of the council. That's big stuff. That means not only are mom and dad going to say just a moment. Not just you may say that, but we're going to do more now. We're going to figure out why you said that. And we're going to look beyond the outward circumstances that led you to it, because he did. And we're going to say, but what was there in your heart? What is there you need to work on that led you to say it? In danger of the council means men could pass judgment on you, a consistory could call you before it and investigate what you did and why you said what you did. And then Jesus gives a third instance. Whosoever shall say the fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The word fool has the idea of one who is impious or godless, who has no fear of God before their eyes. Certainly the unbeliever is a fool. And those sometimes raised in the church. You might find some who do in their life give evidence that they appear to have no fear of God before their eyes. But the thing is that when Jesus refers to calling one a fool, he means I'm lashing out in anger against one who maybe very well is another believer, a brother or sister in Christ, and I'm angry with them because they have not done what I wanted them to do, as if I am the standard to which they must answer And Jesus says, you worthy of hellfire. What you and I have to understand by now is not only that our heart is the greatest obstacle, but that because we have such a heart, a heart that hates, we are subject to all miseries and condemnation itself and deserve hell. There's one more way in which Jesus warns against hatred and shows that the great obstacle is us. And that's in verses 39 and following. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it was a law. It's part of justice even in Old Testament Israel that if I hit you and in so doing caused you to go blind in one eye... The punishment was that I should be made blind in one eye. And there's a justice to that. But no, Jesus is referring to some who use that law in a desire for revenge. There's no man who is blinded by somebody else hitting him, who ought gleefully to say, I get to hit you now! But everyone ought to say, Yes, what you did to me hurt... But what you did while claiming to be a child of God brought dishonor on him. And so although we're going to use the law, and there are consequences that the law prescribes, I do it with grief. But I do it with a view to the saving of your soul that ought to be our attitude. Now in Jesus' day, that wasn't how it went. And in your day and mine, the same happens. So often people use the law, or legal rights we have, in order to express in some legal, civilly legal way, that I have a desire of revenge. And the whole point Jesus makes in verses 38 and following is, don't do that. He isn't forbidding us absolutely to use the law or implement the penalties that the law prescribes, but in what heart? With what attitude? Again, what the law exposes Today, is what a a miserable creature I am. God tells me to love. And I can't make so much as the smallest beginning. But I hate, and I hate, and I hate when left to myself. The Gospel is that God has removed, at least begun to remove, the obstacle. You understand, first of all, that He did so in Jesus Christ. And every time I hate a brother, I'm reminding myself, or ought to remember, what God could have done to me as a sinner. He could have said to me, you, have transgressed my law, and I would have said, I did. He could have said, you didn't just do it outwardly, you did it in your heart, and I'd have to say, I did. And he, could, and he would say to me, you deserve hell and in wrath, because you have offended the glory and the majesty of the one, only true God. You are going to hell. It's what the law prescribed. And I would say, I deserve that. But he says, but I sent Christ. And he laid this sin, too, on Christ's shoulders. And he died in your stead. And he rose again in your behalf. Look at the love of God for us. He took away the obstacle judicially in the atoning death of our Savior in which was the supreme display of his love, goodness, grace, kindness, Mercy to sinners. And now, I have the incentive to love my brother and sister again. He did more in removing the obstacle. He not only took away my curse, had Christ bear hell for me, but he also now works in me by Jesus Christ and his spirit, the new life of Christ. I am restored, at least the restoration has begun. It has yet to be perfected, but it has begun. I am restored to the image of God in Jesus Christ. And therefore I have not only the incentive to love my neighbor, but the power also. So, no longer can I say this obstacle is so great. How can God punish me? for hating one another, when it's what proceeds from my nature. The answer, of course, to that question that the world would ask, and in its school would say, there isn't a good answer, God's a bad God. The answer is, God created us good. But now the answer is more, I have the life of Christ in me. And thirdly, the Lord removes the obstacle by making provisions for judgment. I bring this point up, I probably wouldn't have if I weren't using the Sermon on the Mount. But see how often in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, Jesus refers to judgment. We already looked at a council, or somebody cast uh, brought to the judge and then into prison. He makes references to that often. And certainly the application and the keeping of the Sixth Commandment among Israel made provisions for judgment when one didn't obey. Also the Heidelberg Catechism refers to the magistrates. The concept is there. God says, remember, there is a day of judgment. Now, that means a number of things. That means in the first place that God does raise up people to enforce His law and address wrongdoing. And very often when somebody has sinned against me and my heart is filled with envy, hatred, and desire for revenge, it is not, in fact, up to me to take matters into my own hands. But God has provided. There's a teacher. There's a mother and a father. There are elders in the church. There are civil magistrates. Now let me use them. Bring my cause before them if need be. Be sure I do it in meekness and not desire of revenge, but use them. And in that way, it may be that God corrects the evil doer. Another reason I need to bring this point up is not only because it's prominent in the Sermon on the Mount, but also because it's in the exercise of judgment that there is a proper way and motive in which a person may be put to death. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with a sword to prevent murder. And just as the parent may not hit the child, but when he or she spanks the child in the right place for the right reason without being uh, enraged, is doing what God requires, so also when the civil magistrate says, as it ought to do more often in our land, you have killed, you will be killed. It uses the sword aright to add to that It might be that you young men and women will never be drafted, and you can be thankful for that, drafted into the armed forces. But if the country is ever at a war, you may go forth and kill the enemy without being afraid that you are violating the sixth commandment of God's law. But then the reference to judgment, thirdly, points us to God's judgment above all. And this is a reason why I can lay aside also desire of revenge, hatred, and envy. Even if my name was maligned, the Lord in heaven saw, and the Lord in heaven will take care of it in his way at his time. It might appear to me, although the Lord doesn't tell me everything he does, so he might be dealing with it already now, but it might appear to me, That he doesn't address the wrong until judgment day. But in the day of judgment, he will. And this too, underscores the fact that the obstacle is removed. I have in Christ the example of God's love for me. And in Christ the power to love my neighbor. And that I know that God will address all wrongs. I can. Love. Makes it possible now, thirdly, in addition to the fact that Jesus Christ lives in us by His grace and Spirit, is that I am and you are the children of God. And that's a theme that Jesus Christ underscores in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. By virtue of the regenerating work of Christ and the adopting work of God on the basis of the shed blood of Christ, I am a son of God, as are many of you, and others are daughters of God. In such a way that the life of God is in us, we have the power to show it. What we need then is continually to be strengthened in that life, faith, and power. And we do that as we come to Christ's school. Because the school of Jesus Christ in the law which exposes our misery, our hatred, and which then points us to Christ as the one whom God gave as provision for our penalty and death. That same law says to us, come back here, keep coming to school. The lesson is not just the kind of lesson you learn once, you get tested on once, and you never need to know again, like maybe I had in chemistry in high school. It's the kind of lesson we have to learn and relearn and relearn and get tested on every single day. So keep coming to school. And in the grace of God that you find strengthened here in the house of God, you and I can go forth fighting and addressing, first of all, Our heart sins. And that grace and power, we can now go and ask the question, who is the neighbor that I have been most hating? Who is the neighbor who knows that when I speak at them or look to them, I'm going to do it with an evil glare? Who is that one? I need to go to him or her, confess my sin, ask forgiveness. Who is the neighbor whose gifts I have not appreciated, who tries to love me and I will not receive it, I will go to him or her and say, brother, sister, I love you. Forgive me this wrong. We have to keep coming to school to learn the lesson and find the power. And we're going to do that next week again too, and the following and the following, because you see, although we're finished with the sixth commandment, and ready for the seventh, yet the whole rest of God's law is still going to expand on the main point that underlies the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Amen. Your Father which art in heaven, strengthen us to keep the law, first of all, in our home. Secondly, in the sphere of the covenant. And thirdly, in the world around. We've seen that the great obstacle to love, which is the depravity of our own heart, thou hast removed in Christ. May we not forget that. And now give us to live in such a way as displays that thou art our Father, For Christ's sake.